This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey, this is Sandra McCracken, and you are listening to Steadfast. This is a podcast where I sit down with friends, mentors, and people that I want to hear their stories, and we talk about how God's steadfast love has shown up in every season of our lives. On today's show, my guest is Steve Garber, and I have known Steve for several years. One of the things I appreciate most about him is his voice just reflects such a warmth and hospitality. He's a teacher and author, writes books around the idea of faith and vocation, and we will explore some of those ideas in this conversation today. I know sometimes podcasts are a funny thing where you feel like you're part of a conversation, but you weren't in the room. And in a sense, I hope you feel that way and that you feel invited and that you can just pull up a chair and be part. Good morning. Thank you for making the time today. This is You're very welcome, Sandra. A real privilege for me and it's been it's been I guess a year and a half since I've seen you in person. So this is like a, a nice treat to reconnect and to get to hear how you are and what's happening in your life these days. Are you in DC this morning? I'm in the Washington DC area this morning. We live on the Virginia side of the Potomac River, so I'm across the river, but basically yeah. And what is occupying your time these days? What are you excited about? Excited is a good word, I guess. Every week I meet with a couple of neighbors and we do this religiously for all of our life together. We've made this decision to choose a neighbor before you choose a house. And so we've got neighbors who are like that and who are people who don't do the same things every day that I do. We don't share the same toothbrushes. You know, it isn't yeah. isn't that kind of life, but <laughs> we've been pretty intentional about living a life together. I serve on their boards and we're interested in each other's worlds and families and work. And so we meet at a coffee shop in the neighborhood every week whenever we're in town and just talk and think and, and pray a little bit together. And but mostly just about where we've been the last week, what are we going to be doing this next week, what's going on in the larger world. And so I did that this morning, and I'm coming to the end of another year of teaching, which I've do, been doing for years and years here in Washington. I teach a class I've called Learning to Read the Word and to Read the World at the Same Time. So it's really trying to help these folks learn to live in the tension of the world we live in and understand mm-hmm. both who God is and who we are, but also what the questions and of this world are for us and how we respond to them with our lives. And after about a year of conversation with Regent College in British Columbia, uh-huh. uh, Vancouver, we made a decision, my wife and I, with our community around here, to accept an invitation to join their faculty. I mean, wow. its interface has always been since it started. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you connect in an honest and meaningful way, theological vision with life in the world. And so it's never been a seminary in that typical sense. It's mm-hmm. For years, it called itself the unseminary, interestingly. But we've been gone through, it's been really 10 months of conversation. And, mm-hmm. and I think we've come to the conclusion that even though there are things about it we don't understand yet and we don't know yet, because it's not all neat and clean, but 
that's how life is for all of us. It's not very neat and clean. Um, it has this meandering quality that when you think you have something figured out or that you understand the landscape and this is how it is, this is how it's going to be, then there's some little adjustment or some mm -hmm. surprise that's right coming around the corner. Sometimes it's coming out of loss or out of struggle, but other times it comes out of just unexpected shifts. And, mm -hmm. you know, I guess as I move forward in years, I start to realize that each one of these changes are meant to draw our attention back to who we are and the God who is inviting us deeper into our identity. And I think for a long time, I imagined that that was a thing that we figured out in adolescence and then we put it behind us. But as I'm coming up on my 40th year, I realize it is just beginning. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of us, as we go through trying to figure out where we land or what we want to do with our lives or who we are, this sense of calling, can you talk a little bit about your process in that? How moving from following your father around his work with biology and science then turned into finding your own footing and your own path? I think the truer story is that I was sort of born between a grandfather and a father. And so for my, you know, five to 15 years of my life, I thought I'd be my, my grandfather when I grew up hmm. who bought cattle in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And that was very, very interesting world for me. And I couldn't get enough of it in some ways. But I was also living in California through most of the year, you know, and I thought that the beach life, the beach boys and, you know, and all that was going on in California in the 60s and the 70s was a lot of who I was too. So there was a strange thing between my grandfather's life with cattle in Colorado and my father's life with universities and science and research in California and, and the beach boys too. But I got to be, you know, into high school and I thought probably I would, you know, be more like my father somehow. Except I didn't really like biology that much mm -hmm. in high school, which was really a crisis, I would say, in its own small adolescent way about what am I going to do with my life then? I'd always loved reading, so that was a, always a part of who I was. And I think when I got to be midway through high school, I began to realize that maybe all my love for reading had given me some love for the way that sentences worked and the way that words could work. And I began to get involved in high school journalism and was the editor of my high school newspaper and you know, thought I would be a journalist for the next years of my life. But about age 18, 19 or so, I heard the word worldview for the first time that I remember. And I was sort of, I was intrigued by what a worldview might mean in my life and a way of making sense of all of my life. Hmm. And I would say, I mean, it's a longer, deeper story, I suppose. But, you know, I think from my college years on, I began to be very interested in this relation between ideas and life. Hmm. And the, the argument that ideas have legs began to make sense to me. They have to get worked out in the world. And, you know, I did an undergraduate degree and a master's degree and finally a PhD. But they were all on this question of what's the relation between what we say we believe and how we actually live our lives. Hmm. That has really been the heart of my interest for most of my life now, I suppose. Hmm. And and because I see vocation to be a pretty big word, a pretty complex word, I think vocation is not the same word as occupation. So it isn't mm. the same word as career, job, or work. Right. Work or job or career uh, or occupation find their way into our vocations. Our vocations are expressed in our work. 
that we're bigger, we're more complicated people than simply what do we do with our work lives. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the heart of all that is what I believe about the world and who am I in the world and how am I going to live in the world? Mm -hmm. And that's a big question and a complex question. And it has implications for the work we do, but it's a bigger question than that. Yeah, that that feels so important. What do you think are the, in the moment we're in culturally, the way we're I experience the world to be very noisy, mm-hmm. my world, my day-to-day life to be very noisy, which feels to me is like kind of in opposition to the quiet and the space that it takes to sit and reflect on this differentiation between occupation and vocation. And what do you think some of the challenges are in our present moment that keep us from being awake to the reality of that, how the ideas of our, you know, like the action of our lives, it's it's almost hard to find the question, but um, what keeps mm. us from acting in an integrated way out of our ideas? Is the problem yeah. with our ideas or is it with how we live? You and I should take a long walk and talk about this. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> um, answer. I would like that, actually. I would too. Um, I mean, I can draw upon this, you know, almost ancient trilogy of the world and the flesh and the devil to respond to you. I mean, we live in a world which is numbing to us, numbing to us. Mm-hmm. I've had this long thesis that the artists get there first. And so, you know, you're an artist, but art in general, people who, are, who have the calling of artist in the world, they have been given by God, I would say, you know, for blessing or curse, antennae, kind of a sensitivity mm-hmm. that picks up what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And they either respond to it with insight and, or they, in some ways, distort it and make a mess of it. But, you know, 20 years ago now, you too had a song called Numb. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first saw it, I thought, that's very, very good, actually. And over time, I mean, what their song was essentially saying, to be alive in a technological world, to be alive in a plugged-in world where we're always plugged in. Mm-hmm. And that's more so 20 years later than it was when they wrote the song that it numbs us because there's just so much going on all the time and we can't take it all in when we turn the barometers of our hearts down because we don't know what to do with all the things we hear about. How are we possibly going to respond to all that? And we can't. We just can't. Yeah, um, yeah I've felt the ache of that in the last few years uh, as I think I've come into a season where, like a prolific season creatively. And as I've moved into that, a lot of it has come by way of suffering. And on a personal level, I feel that acutely. I feel like the meters are turned up so high that everything is coming in. And it's it's uncomfortable. It's a hard way to walk around in the world when you're feeling mm-hmm. the empathy of it and just the awareness And the temptation to try to get out of that place and just numb and to, you know, numb as a verb, even just to find ways to like not to sort of medicate that. And yet I think God invites us deeper into those places and that that is what makes the art kind of translucent where whatever you are making. So when I put pen to paper or pick up my guitar and I think your writing is the same way. It's like, even just what you said a few minutes ago, your answer to a complex question is like, can we take a walk? I think that God wants to walk with us and not necessarily just to answer our questions, but he wants to actually be with us in presence. And you Mm -hmm. just, I hear that in who you are and how you kind of interact in the world. And it's a good reminder. There's an awakeness, I think, that can be 
with God's presence can be a gentle awakeness, you know, <laughs> like we're waking up into something that's more real than what we're bombarded with, with email or with social media or with performance and ambition. All of these things are ways of hiding out from our true identity and our shimmering self, you know, as Beatner yeah, would call exactly it. That's exactly right, Sandra. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking in Denver in several different settings. and But my wife had said, why don't you take another day to be in Colorado? Because she knows that it's very deep and dear to me. And so I spent one more day there before coming home and went up into the mountains and kind of deep, in sort of surprising ways, Rocky Mountain National Park has been one of the most mm -hmm. important places in all mm -hmm. of my, in my whole life. And so I spent a night there and a morning there and and because we were making this decision about our own future, mm. I literally just wanted to be quiet for a while. And I, you know, got out and walked in the meadows and along the mountainsides and looked at the mountains and these mountains I've known my whole life and, you know, the grand sky. And mm. and I don't know how else to say it, Sandra, other than to say, just actually crying out to God in heaven saying, you know, we want to do what is right here. We want to understand the way before us, you know. I mm. ask you to, to give us enough light to, to make good choices here. And mm -hmm. it'd been a place in a different in different ways over the course of all of my life where I've I've been there where more momentous decisions have been made in my life. But I just needed to be quiet actually for a while, mm. just to think about those things. There's a place you and I both love quite a bit called Laity Lodge mm -hmm. in Texas. And yes. you know Stephen Purcell and the director there, and and he's a friend to me as well. And a couple of years ago, they were having their annual contemplative retreat. And he said, would you come and speak at it? He said, you know, I know you don't have on your business card, Stephen Garber <laughs> contemplative, but you are kind of that way, you know. Uh -huh. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> but he said, well, come and talk. He said, but I don't want you to come and invite people to live like desert mothers and fathers. Because these would be people from Austin and from San Antonio and Houston and Dallas and, and all over America. So bring this idea of vocation with you. Bring this question of vocation with you into this contemplative retreat. Hmm. And so I did. We called it a contemplative life for the rest of life. Hmm. Um, you know, just coming back to where our little bit of conversation began, Sandra. I mean, I think the challenge is more how do we, in the context of the push and shove of life, the very noisy world that overwhelms us and numbs us and seems beleaguering to us. Mm. How do we, in that world, live a contemplative life, live a life of, of deepening commitments and deepening loves and clarifying hearts and where we don't get lost? That's really the harder question, I think. When we get quiet and we get into this contemplative space, one of the things that I've experienced that is so difficult is that I think I don't want to get quiet because I don't want to deal with the sorrow or the things that are there when I get really quiet. But when I do and when I practice that more often, I realize that to be able to process that and to weep those tears in a more habitual way, like to have space for that, then I realize that it releases this energy that becomes redemptive in my life and in the world. Because if I'm running from it, I'm not going to actually be able to live in that honest place. So when we were together in Vermont a few years ago, I was so encouraged to see you in life and friendship with Mako Fujimura and to hear you all share about your encounter with John 11. You know, this passage where Jesus and Mary are interacting after the death of Lazarus. 
I just wondered if you could share a little bit of your story around that and what that passage means to you, this scripture that says Jesus wept when he meets Mary. Mm-hmm. I grew up, you know, in the California and Colorado and with people who were good people and he wanted me to be a good person. And, you know, I was aware of heartache and death and tragedy and sorrow and tears along the way because of who I was and where I lived. And mm. But I would say it probably wasn't until in my early 20s I began to think about that more. Mm personally and thinking maybe more intellectually and realizing that philosophically or theologically that was a problem in the world Mm -hmm. you know what do we do with tears and sorrow and hurt and heartache in this world and i think it probably initially was reading albert camus novel the plague which you know first kind of made me think about this more frontally and thinking sheesh you know, here's this, these two guys in the story. One's a physician, one's a priest, mm. and they both are watching a horrible thing happen, the bubonic plague coming to their city, mm. and they respond very different ways. One of them says, well, you know, I'm a priest, and God's in charge of the world, and, you know, the plague must be from God, then I can't fight the plague because I'd be fighting God. Mm-hmm. And the physician says, well, I don't know about God, but I'm going to fight the plague because the plague isn't right. And it just raised a question for me, which in some ways that I've been living with all my life. I think about the same period of time, I came across this essay by a man named Benjamin Warfield, who'd been a professor over 100 years ago now at Princeton Seminary. And it was called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, which was in some ways just a smile at all of us here, written by a Presbyterian theologian you know, over a century ago, mm. and writing about the emotions of God which I thought was pretty interesting. But basically in it, he spends, you know, it's pages upon pages in some ways, but there are pages on John chapter 11 and his own reading of what goes on with Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And as I read him arguing actually that, of course, those famous words, Jesus wept, mean a lot to us because there's empathy and sorrow with those who have sorrow that is shown there with Jesus and Mary and Martha. But what Warfield argues is that there's another part to this which is very important, and it is when it says in different translations that Jesus groaned deeply in his spirit, that actually those are a different kind of tear, and those are the tears of anger and and outrage at what went wrong in the world, Mm -hmm. what has gone wrong in the world. Mm -hmm. And the more I read that, the more I was thinking about Camus, and the more I was growing up into my 20s, and then of course, beyond and realizing that it's a very, very, sometimes a very heartbreaking world we live in and things that are horrible happen in this mm-hmm. world. And and what, what are you going to do about them? And how will, you, how will you respond to them? And for me, I would say that I came to the conclusion that if John 11 wasn't in the Bible, I don't know that I would want to be a Christian, uh, frankly. In terms of my own framework, though, and my understanding of who God is and who I am and what the world is like, mm-hmm. if God is not the God who is outraged mm-hmm. at what goes wrong in this world because of its heartache and sorrow and tragedy and injustice, then I'm not really interested, frankly. Yeah. You know, it just seems to me that it's critical that we able are able to, to follow mm-hmm. in the long language of the church in the imitation of Christ here and to realize that in Christ we have God himself, the emotions of God displayed for us, over something which has terribly gone wrong in the world. Hmm. And that is a very important place for us to rest ourselves and in some ways to have a faith that can make sense of having to live in the broken, wounded world we live in.
Yeah, in the last few years as I've written music around the Psalms and as I've reflected on the Psalms, I have found great comfort in that. I think the Psalms give us words with this wide emotional space that says that, you know, that within the Psalms there, every emotion is represented, including anger, and mm -hmm. profoundly so. And I've found that that has given me permission to feel and to express all that before God. It's like, if this is kind of his hymnal that he's given us, he's saying, yeah, sing, sing to me. This is part of the integrity of who he is that he's printed onto us and into us, that we would be able to express that. And yet on, on a Sunday morning or in the rest of our lives, it takes some wisdom and maturity to know how to contextualize that anger, what to do and when to express it how to express it. Is that okay to express it? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't strike me as somebody who's angry, but in my own story, it's like, I don't want to walk around leading with that. And yet I want to hold, um, I want to hold a room for that yeah. so that other people would be able to find that same resonance within their own story, you know? And I do think, Sandra, that is one of the great gifts. So I can come back to you and say one of the great gifts that you give to the world. The people who talk to me about you and your work, they will often talk about, you know, I love the song she writes because it's the world I live in, mm. you know, and it's not because you're maudlin, you know, or you're, you know, you're angry or you're, you know, you can't get over, you know, wanting to cry every time about, about everything. But there's some things that are worth crying about. I think that's the yeah. thing which, to me, John 11 is important for us to learn from. Yeah. There's some things that are worth crying about. And if we don't cry about them, then in some ways we're missing our place in the world. We're missing both who God is mm -hmm. and how God sees them, mm -hmm. but we're also missing what a, a deeply human response is to be to them. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, when you even mentioned Sunday morning, I mean, I think, yes, I mean, it probably wouldn't be right, at least most of the time, to enter mm -hmm. into all to the worship of God with outrage. But I think sometimes some place where outrage and lament meet is really important, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, and if we don't do that, I think I've said sometimes to music leaders in churches, don't you understand that when the world saw this happen this week, that the people who are worshiping here did too? You know, and they come into you right. wanting you to lead them into some place where lament and outrage meet because it was really horrible what happened in the world this week. Yeah. You know, and they're all thinking about that. So for us to act as if somehow we ought to come in and just start singing praise be to you on high. Yes. Um, it just doesn't make sense to who we are. That's right. It's not a full picture. It feels inauthentic to try to posture ourselves in a way that says worship should just be this small percentage of our emotional range. And Marva Dawn, this tremendous writer about worship and context, talks about how you know you would have songs in each given service that would reflect where people could be. Some folks could be in joy, some in sorrow, some in anger, and that you would have a range of songs in each <laughs> worship service that you would find yourself somewhere in there. And I love leading the old hymns that have eight verses, and you might find yourself in verse four one week, and some some weeks you'll find <laughs> yourself somewhere else. Right. And it's, you know, the words are helpful to kind of guide us into a deeper place where we can be awake to that. It inspires me to want to apply myself to that week in and week out, both in my local church and in, in the church at large when I have the opportunity. And Sandra, I would say that really is an important work you've been given to do. I think about you when I, I think about something that Tom Wright or N.T. Wright wrote years ago about the vocation of Jesus. And he says that the vocation of Jesus was somehow to take both the most remarkable joy and the most remarkable sorrow and to weave them into the pattern of his days. 
And as we take up the imitation of Jesus in our own lives, we will find that same vocation to be ours, that same remarkable joy and remarkable sorrow, and we are to weave them into the pattern of our days. And because I'm not going to be a Buddhist in this life, and basically at the end of the day say joy and sorrow are really the same thing, if I was only enlightened enough to see that they're the same thing, and I'm not going to do that, I won't do that, because they're not the same thing. They're very different, really, but they're both part of our experience of life. So how do we make sense of them? And I think that, you know, that to have songs to sing that somehow wrestle with with integrity, artistic integrity, theological integrity, you know, psychological integrity, historical integrity, with the reality of both joy and sorrow, it's very, very important to us. Just kind of a personal story as we were talking about the anger, I think it's not enjoyable for me to experience anger. I don't like it. I don't like how it feels or looks on me. And yet um, there have been some moments where as I was invited into those places where he pushes me or it's not a push. It's a, it's really not. It's um, it's like a door opening and an opportunity, an invitation. And I think there was a night um, a few years ago during Holy Week at our church and we were meeting. And at the end of the service, it was like, I think it was the Thursday, Wednesday, or th- it was sometime the week before Easter. And we had a very somber, heavy service. And at the end of the service, we had closed the communion table saying, you know, symbolically, we will not take communion until the resurrection celebration. Mm-hmm. And I remember as I was feeling some things personally, that night, I remember after everyone left and the lights were out and I was like the last one in there, I wanted to start throwing chairs. The feeling Mm. that that table was closed and the feeling that like the symbolism of that just gripped me. And I walked up by myself. I I went up on the parking lot behind our building where we meet and we rent out a a space and a larger building. So there's this huge parking lot with like kind of orangey lights and like a not a very scenic place. And I laid out <laughs> in that parking lot and I just cried the bitter tears. Mm. And um, that the anger was finally like kind of coming out. And what I realized is at the end of it, um, and even in the middle of it, but realizing like God was opening the door for that. He was saying, this is welcome. Your anger is welcome. And not only that, but I am in it with you. And I almost Mm -hmm. felt like I could see myself third person to sort of look, you know how you do, you you look back and you have memories and you, a lot of times we, um, like I can be kind of tough on myself. Like we look back and we critique ourselves or whatever. But in that moment, I felt like I could step out and stand with God next to the story of my life and say, yes, I'm with you. And it was that, it was like that passage of Jesus with the anger and the tears of Jesus wept. And to be able to glimpse it and enter into it, even in some small way, I feel like it enlarged a space in my heart that the next time I sit down to write something, it is that, you know, that passage that says, um, put your tent stakes wider. I think it's in Isaiah, you know, stretch Mm -hmm. out your tent stakes. Like he is going to make provision and he will fill the space that he opens up, this space that's opened by injustice, whether it's opened by suffering in the world and in the people in our lives. When we encounter and are willing to go there, I just, I marvel at the mercy and grace that floods into that new space that's created. And I think that's the place where we grow into a knowledge of God and and a more honest picture of ourselves and 
We are made to sing for sure, you know, symbolically and literally. And I think the way that your work has invited me and it has helped to open the door to that, I'm, I'm really grateful. And it's, um, it's really a privilege to sort of <laughs> circle these themes with you and in the times that we intersect, you know, it's, um, it's a real gift. So I'm, I'm very well, grateful. It's a gift back to, to me, Sandra. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks. And thank you, just to say to you again, thank you for the gifts you give to me. There Thanks. are many times when I just enter back into the world that you have drawn me into. And that's a gift to me. So. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Steve. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Steadfast is a Harbor Media production. It was produced by Mike Cosper. It was edited by Mike Cosper and TJ Hester. Mixed by Mark Owens. It was recorded by Seth Talley. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. In the meantime, if you want to be part of this conversation, if you have a story you want to share about God's steadfast love and the way He has met you and the circumstances of your lives, then we'd love for you to share it with us. Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to steadfastwithsandra at gmail.com. We will be featuring some of these stories on the upcoming episodes. All right. Thanks so much, folks. See you in two weeks. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.